And this morning, uh, obviously, we're looking at the verses that we read together, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And, you know, just let me say, uh, this is a challenging passage to teach. This is a hard message to give today um, because, you know, in, in so many ways, I mean, it, it is a very negative uh, message. It's talking about the beginning of the judgment of God that's going to fall on the earth. So it's kind of been a struggle uh, for me the past couple of services, but you know, trust that even through this, the Lord is going to use it to uh, build us up and to strengthen us as his people and perhaps to even draw those who need to be drawn to him. So hopefully that's uh, what's happening here today. So I've entitled the message, The Beginning of the End. And that's really what we're dealing with here as we come to this sixth chapter, the first verse, and the opening of these first four seals. Remember, there's a, uh, in the right hand of, of God sitting upon the throne, there's a scroll that is written and it's sealed uh, front and back with seven seals. No one's worthy to open the scroll, to loose the seals. John is weeping convulsively, but then he's pointed toward uh, the, he's pointed toward the Lord Jesus. The, the elder says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he can take the scroll. He can loose the seals. John looks there in the midst of the throne and he sees a lamb as it had been slain. And there Jesus takes the scroll out of the father's hand. And so now he begins to open that scroll and that's where we pick up here in the account. And with the opening of the first seal, we have the beginning of the tribulation period. So from, from this point forward, all the way through the middle of chapter 19, we are now going to be in the tribulation period. And so, you know, uh, I think today's kind of challenging. I think the next, you know, several weeks is going to be challenging to find you know, real encouraging words out of the midst of the tribulation. It will be a task, uh, but I trust that God will enable us to do it. But that, that's what we're dealing with now. That's what we've come to in the book. So we had the, the, the second and the third chapter, which dealt with the things of the church, the history of the church. And then we have that uh, John being caught up into heaven. The, uh, the 24 elders are there. I think that's representative of the church being there. And so the rapture has already taken place, and now this uh, tribulation period begins. So what is the tribulation? Well, the tribulation is an unprecedented time of death and destruction. That's what it is. And that's why it makes you know, teaching these passages so difficult. It is a time of death and destruction like has never been seen before. There has never been anything like it before, and there'll never be anything like it again. Jesus uh, described it like this. He said in Matthew 24, he said, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. 
No flesh would be saved unless those days are shortened. So this, as I said, it's an unprecedented time. Nothing has, has ever uh, occurred like what is going to happen in the tribulation period. Now, to date, the Second World War is by far the greatest war in history in terms of human resources expended. In all, 61 countries with 1.7 billion people, which was three-fourths of the world's population at the time, uh, took part in some way, shape, or form in the Second World War. It is estimated that between 60 to 80 million people lost their lives due to that war. That, that is almost incomprehensible. And for, uh, you know, a, a few of you, perhaps you, you lived during that time or, um, you know, many, many of you lived during that time, but uh, some of you might have, you know, we still have a few people that actually uh, were engaged in the actual conflict. But, but everybody knows from the historical account that World War II uh, was the war to end all wars in a sense. But the amazing thing is that it pales in comparison to what we read about in scripture concerning the great tribulation. So you take the death and destruction of the second world war and you multiply that many times over and you have perhaps begun to get close to what we're talking about with the great tribulation. Now, with the opening of this first seal, you have, as I said, the beginning of the end. And at the moment that the seal is opened, the final seven years of history as we know it begins. And history as we know it has been a long uh, failed attempt by mankind uh, at um, self-rule. That's really what history has been. So, so the opening of this, this first seal is the, the beginning of that final effort on the part of humanity to once and forever throw off the, uh, any, any ties to, to a deity, any ties to God, and, and it's the final effort at self-rule, and it will fail more miserably than any previous attempt. And so these will be the final seven years of history as we know it. They will be the most disastrous years the world has ever known. This will ironically be the most short-lived kingdom ever in all of history. It will be a worldwide uh, empire, but it will last only seven years. Now, it is, it is the time of God's judgment. That's what the tribulation is. It's the day of the vengeance of our God. When Jesus was in the synagogue in the city of Nazareth where he grew up, 
We read there in Luke chapter four that he, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he opened it and he read it. And he read these words. It said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, uh, to bring sight to the blind, to uh, preach deliverance to the captives and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus stopped in mid-sentence. If he would have continued reading, it would have said, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But the first coming of Jesus brought about the acceptable year of the Lord. And now we know that that acceptable year of the Lord has gone on for uh, 2,000 years now. And it's been a time of grace. It's been a time of mercy. It's been a time where God is not imputing uh, the sins of people uh, to them and judging them directly, but he's given men and women this long season of grace and opportunity to repent. But there's a moment when all of that is over and then begins the day of the vengeance of our God. And that's really what the tribulation is. It's the day of God's wrath poured out upon the earth. Now, here in the the verses that we read, we have these uh, four horses with their riders, the opening of the first four seals. Uh, This has been referred to as, or or these uh, horses and riders have have been referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The apocalypse, remember, is another, uh, it's actually the Greek form of the word revelation. Uh, I think back in the 80s, I think somebody um, wrote a book called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. But as we look at these these first four, uh, the seals are opened. And and just with these seals, you have these four horsemen. We see the beginning and the, the continuation of the judgment of God upon the earth. Now, just real quickly, when you look at the, the seven seals, remember that this is a seven sealed scroll. Jesus is beginning to open the seals. And as you go through and you look at the seals, you come at the end, when you get to the seventh seal, you are introduced to seven trumpets. And then you go through and you come to the seventh trumpet. And when you get to the seventh trumpet, you come to the seven bowls. Now, rather than seeing these in in like a chronological order, that first you have the seals, then you have the trumpets, then you have the bulls, I think a a better way to understand it is each one of them are describing the same period of time, but it's just a a different perspective. So the seals are giving you kind of the, um, the, uh, like, view from, from above, kind of the flyover view. So you're, you're getting not a detailed account of, the, of this period, but you're, you're just getting kind of the, the panoramic of, of what's going to be happening during this time. When you come to the trumpets, you get a, a closer look. And when you come to the bulls, you get a very detailed look. So it's the same period of time, I think. It covers this entire seven-year period, um, but it's just going from a... Uh, sort of a looking at it from a distance to looking at it more, uh, more closely, finally. And so we start with the first seal being opened. And in verse two, it says, and I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So the big mystery is who, who is on this horse? 
It's a white horse. Uh, there's a person with a crown. They go forth conquering. They have a bow. Uh, some have said, well, this, of course, is Jesus Christ. This is the Lord uh, coming back. But there's a couple of problems with that. The first problem is Jesus is the one opening the seal. So it's not likely that he's the one both opening the seal and riding the first horse. Now, the reason some people think that it's Jesus is because there's a very similar picture in Revelation chapter 19, uh, a, a white horse coming from heaven, a rider with a crown, but there are some differences, but that Revelation chapter 19 is definitely Jesus. It's the, it's the second coming of Christ to the earth. And there's similarities, but there are major differences. Why are there similarities? Because the first one, the one that we're looking at here, is the false Messiah. You see, a false Christ has to look somewhat like the real Christ in order to deceive people. And so even some Bible commentators have been kind of deceived, you know, not in a, in a total way, but, you know, they, they look at it and say, oh, well, it's the, it's the same thing. But no, it's not. What we have here in the opening of the first seal is we have the introduction of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is coming to power. Now, the Antichrist, most of you have, have heard the term the Antichrist, we commonly connect the, the word Antichrist to the book of Revelation, and understandably so, because we're talking about the Antichrist right now. But maybe you didn't know this, but the book of Revelation never uses the term Antichrist. The, the, the term Antichrist is found four times in the New Testament, and every time it's used by the Apostle John, but it's never used in the book of Revelation. And John speaks of a coming Antichrist in the singular sense, a, a the we know that the Antichrist will come, he said, and there are many Antichrists that have already come. So John designated, he recognized that there would be one that would come. And that, that's the one that we're reading about here. Now, Antichrist in the Greek, it doesn't only mean someone who's against Christ, but it means even more than that. It means someone who is in the place of Christ. So he's a false Christ, a pseudo-Christ. And this is the Messiah that the world will accept. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. It says that he uh, has a bow. In contrast to the picture in Revelation 19, um, the rider on the horse in Revelation 19, who is Jesus? He comes with a sharp sword. Now, in biblical language or biblical imagery, when you're talking about a battle, the sword is always the decisive weapon. So it says, like in the Old Testament, for example, you read, uh, and they, they smote them by the edge of the sword. It means that they wiped them out with a sword. So the sword was always the, the, the decisive weapon to destroy the enemy. Jesus comes wielding a sword. But here, the writer has a bow. Now, the bow, of course, is a weapon, but the bow, although you could obviously kill somebody with a bow, the bow was, would more often wound a person than actually kill them. And I think what we're being told here is that this Antichrist, when he comes to power, he will not come to power primarily through military might. Even though there will be a military component, it won't be the, the primary way by which he gains power. He will gain power by diplomacy. 
He will gain power through legislation and things like that rather than gaining power militarily. Now, we're told about him that he's wearing a crown. But the crown here is different than the crown in Revelation 19. Jesus is wearing the diadem, which is the king's crown. This person is wearing the Stephanos, which is the victor's wreath. And so all of that to say, we're dealing here in the opening of the first seal with the, uh, the Antichrist coming to power. And he's going to come to power primarily through diplomacy, and he is going to implement a worldwide peace of sorts. And if you think about it, I mean, what is the world looking for today? If, if, there, if somebody arose tomorrow that had a, a sure and certain method by which they could promise world peace, you know, the whole world would flock to that person. The world is desperate for a, a peace plan and for somebody that can bring peace. Well, that's exactly how this person is going to gain authority over the whole world. It's by bringing about a, a pseudo peace. And we'll get into all of the details of how this is going to happen the further we get into the book of Revelation. But that is, that is basically uh, what's going to happen. He's going to bring in a, a peace that is a worldwide peace. But as we move from the first horse and rider to the second, we see that it's a very short-lived peace. Because look what happens with the opening of the second seal. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse, fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So in order to take peace, there has to be peace. So the, the Antichrist is going to come up with this peace plan, but it's gonna be short lived. And it's not going to be long before the whole thing starts to fall apart and the next horse and rider have the authority given by God to take peace from the earth and there's going to be war all over the world. People are going to kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. So the picture here is of war breaking out and the, the kingdom of the Antichrist beginning to fracture and to crumble uh, very, very early on. And as we look at the whole period of time, it's a seven-year period. And how do we know it's a seven-year period? Because Daniel chapter 9 tells us that it's a seven-year period. There were 77-year periods determined upon the nation of Israel to bring to pass all of the, the prophecies concerning the Messiah and the nation and their eternal destiny. 69 of those seven-year periods uh, were completed at the first coming of Christ. There's one seven-year period that remains for everything to be finalized. So that's how we know that it's a seven-year period. And it would appear that the, the peace part of this period is maybe the first uh, three and a half years. Could be shorter. Uh, it could go all the way to three and a half years. We know at the three and a half year point, that's when all hell literally breaks loose. So it's a short-lived peace. War breaks out. And then 
from there, moving on to the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, saying a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So as has always been the case, when you have, a, when you have war breaking out, famine usually follows war. And so that's what's going to happen. You're going to have war breaking out around the world. You're going to have famine as a result of it. Uh, it's going to cost a day's wage to just get uh, enough for a loaf of bread for a day. So this, this brief uh, reign of, of peace and, and obviously to some degree prosperity is going to end abruptly with war breaking out and then famine following the war. But notice it says something interesting. It says, it says, but do not touch the wine and the oil or the oil and the wine. And the oil and the wine were, um, they were luxuries in John's day. And so what it appears is that as is always the case, the common people suffer first, and they often suffer the most, while those in places of power and position who are usually the ones responsible for all the misery in the world, they are kind of just, you know, still living um, the good life. And, and that's going to happen here initially. And you might wonder, well, why, why does God allow that? Because he is basically saving the severe judgment for those to the last. When we come to Revelation chapter 18, that's where we see the total obliteration of the culture of, of the rich and famous, if you will, and the elites who have dominated uh, the masses over all of the long history of the world. It all comes to a, to a, a crashing end in the 18th chapter. And so from there, we come now finally to the writer. The fourth seal is opened and the writer of the, the pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed after him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and by the beast of the earth. Death and Hades. Death is speaking of the physical. Hades is speaking of the invisible or the spiritual part of a person. So death and Hades together. The bodies are slain. The spirits are imprisoned. And that's why they're joined together here. And notice what it says. It says... And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill. A fourth of the earth. So as we said in the beginning, the, the, uh, the statistics from the, from the Second World War are, are just so massive. It's staggering to think of it. But we're talking uh, between 60 and 80 million people. Here, we're talking about a fourth of the world's population. In less than 10 years, the world's population will be 8 billion. And so we're talking a number of possibly 2 billion people. Can you imagine 
At the time of the Second World War, there were, there were less than two billion people on the entire planet. So when we look at these numbers, though, when we look at a fourth of the world's population, we're talking about the, the, the possible death and destruction of as many as two billion people. This is staggering. It's mind-boggling. It's, it's inconceivable, this kind of death and destruction. Anybody who lived through the Second World War, especially in the war zones of, uh, you know, Europe or, or Japan, uh, the, the devastation was unimaginable. And we've all probably seen the, the films and the, read the, the books and things. But uh, again, all of this, is, as horrific as it was, it's going to pale in comparison. So you see, this is a... This is a time that nobody in their right mind would choose to live through. There will be plenty of people involved in it, but if, if there was a way to not live through it, if there was a possibility to avoid this, you would want to do everything you possibly could to make sure you were not part of this. Now, Coming to the application here, no one knows the day or the hour when these things are going to happen. Jesus said that no one knew the day or the hour uh, in which he would return for his church. And we could say the same thing about the opening of the first seal. No one knows the day they are because those, those two things are definitely connected. And remember, if we just go back to the text beginning in chapter four, all of this stuff is happening immediately. John is caught up into heaven. He sees God on the throne. He's got the scroll in his hand. He, he weeps, then he's consoled. And then Jesus comes forth and he takes the scroll and he opens it so uh, John being a, t a type of the church, the elders being a type of the church. I see the churches in heaven there. And then, um, so it, it's going to be fairly immediate that all of this happens, but no one knows when it is going to happen. Yet it seems reasonable to expect a conditioning and a preparing of people's hearts and minds to receive this false Messiah and I think without a doubt, this is what we see all around us today. Now, I, I don't want to get too deeply involved, even in our study in Revelation, of, of trying to connect all of the things happening in the world to some prophecy in the Bible. I think that's a mistake to do that because most of the time people are proven wrong. There are some some general signs that we can look to with absolute confidence that yes, this particular thing shows us that we're headed in this direction. But the problem that often occurs is uh, Bible teachers, especially prophecy teachers, they're, they're getting too detailed. They're trying, to, they're trying to connect everything going on in the world to some scripture somewhere. And I think that's, that's a mistake. So we, we wanna avoid doing that. But, like I said, I think it would be reasonable to, to consider that there, there's going to be a, a time of conditioning and, and the preparing of people's minds for this kind of thing to happen. 
And the kind of thing that we're talking about happening, primarily what I want to, to focus on, because this is the first event, is the, the rise of the Antichrist. See, that happens first. And even though today we look around the world and we see that there's a lot of war and we see that there's a lot of potential for war, um, the, all of the things that are happening in the world today, some of them are pointing in the direction of what's happening in the future. Some of them are just things that have always happened. So we need to make a distinction between that. You see, because when we argue uh, with skeptics and we say, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of war going on in the world today. Jesus said there's going to be a lot of war. People will argue back and say, there's always been a lot of war. They're right. There has been. Jesus in Matthew 24 and here in Revelation, we're talking about a specific period of time that doesn't begin until the Antichrist comes to power. And so we have to understand it. So the, the things that are happening in the world today, like, for example, Russia being in Syria and those kinds of things, ISIS and, and all of the stuff that's in our news, those might or might not develop and uh, transition into this period of time. They might or might not. We don't know. Because what we're reading about here is something that happens after the church is removed and when the Antichrist comes to power. So the wars that we're talking about here, we, we read about the, the fiery red horse. They're not wars that are brewing right now because there's going to become a time of peace. There are wars that are going to come after. So to try to make the connection today and say, well, look at all the, uh, the threats of war around the world. That shows us that it's the end times. Not necessarily. Because these things are going to come at a specific point in time after the Antichrist comes to power. But things that we would expect, like I said, if this is going to happen, we would expect to see that there would be a conditioning that's taking place. And we do see that in our world today. It seems like today, more than at any other time, uh, people are more inclined uh, to give their allegiance to some type of a leader, like sort of like a Caesar type of a person. We're, we're seeing that on a global scale today, that people are, are ready to follow blindly anyone who promises to give them something like uh, cradle-to-grave benefits. You know, it's just like you promise people, we're going to take care of you, we're going to pay for your everything. You know, we're going to pay for your health care. We're going to pay for your education. We're going to just, you know, we're just going to take care of you. It's kind of like um, back in the Roman days, you know, it was bread and circus. As long as you just gave the people enough bread and entertained them enough with a circus, you could do anything you want. You could control them completely. And that's, that's kind of the mentality of the world today. And it's so rapidly moved there. Because, of course, there, there was a time not all that long ago in this country in particular where those kinds of things were not only not appealing, those kinds of things were resisted and opposed and nobody wants that. We've seen that happen in all different kinds of countries. It's an absolute failure. But, you know, it has is, it is come uh, home to, the, to this country as well. And that's the mentality of a lot of people today. And I think if you, if, you, if you remember back to the elections in 2008, things happened during those elections that 
we had never seen before in our history. In all the presidential elections that we had ever had, we'd never seen it on, on this kind of a scale where then-candidate Barack Obama, now President Barack Obama, and I'm not saying this, I, I, I'm not saying this about him specifically, I'm just, I wanna make the connection between the attitude of people where suddenly the president is being looked at as a messiah, as a savior. And maybe you remember back in the 2008 election uh, season and the, the campaigning that was going on. And there, there was one event in particular that stood out because it was at a stadium. There were thousands and thousands of people there. And they set the stadium up like it was a, like a Greek uh, Parthenon or something. And, and it was almost like a, a welcoming of the gods kind of a thing. And you remember, of course, all of the words about hope and the bumper stickers about hope. And, and it wasn't the face of Jesus on the bumper sticker that was offering hope to everybody. It was the face of Barack Obama. And that wasn't only happening in America. Because wherever I found myself traveling in the world at that time, you know, everybody was talking about the new president. Everybody was, was looking with anticipation for this president to do something on a global scale that was going to make everything better for people. So my point, again, I'm not using this to talk about Obama himself. I'm, I'm talking more about just the, the mentality of people. We've arrived at that place where I think it is true globally that the world is longing for a singular leader. The world is waiting for that one person that will rise up and especially that one person who can bring peace with some prosperity. That one person that's going to liberate the proletariat like the, the Marxists have always promised to do. And going to elevate the, the little man and make the playing field level for everybody. That, that's what people are longing for today. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. So my point is this, as we see the world is conditioned toward that now, that, that would, that's a necessary element in order for these things to come to pass. And so since we see that that is, uh, generally speaking, that is the mentality of so much of the world today, I think that we are on the threshold of these very things happening so, the second thing I want to point out is that Jesus described the tribulation as a snare or a trap that will come upon all who dwell on the earth. This is a global thing. It's a snare, and it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but he promised to the church and specifically to the church of Philadelphia that was marked by faithfulness to keeping his word. He promised that he would keep them out of that hour of trial that is coming on all the world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the rapture is the means of God's deliverance for his church from this period of time. So the stage is being set. The world is moving in that direction. We don't know when 
it is all going to solidify. But this is what we do know. We know that the church, God's people, his bride, will not be here for these events. Now, there are people that, there are Christians, or good Christian people, that think that my position, our position on that is wrong. They say, oh no, you guys are fooling yourself. You know, we're going through the tribulation. They often argue based on what other Christians have experienced throughout history. No, all kinds of Christians have gone through these things. You know, they've been tortured and they've been beheaded and they, and you know, we think we're going to escape. You think we're going to escape? Well, one of the things I think they sometimes overlook is that all of those examples of tribulation, which are absolutely true, the, tri- the source of the tribulation was the devil and wicked men. The source of the great tribulation is not the devil and wicked men, it's God. God is punishing the world. And if you understand the, the purposes of the tribulation that are spelled out for us in scripture, you see that the church really has no place in the tribulation. It would be odd to find the church in the tribulation because the, the purposes of the tribulation have nothing to do with the church. There's two main purposes. Number one, purpose. Daniel tells us it's to, it's to, to break the will and the pride of the Jewish nation. As I pointed out before, the book of Revelation uh, takes our focus right back to the nation of Israel. And, you know, uh, national Israel has, for 2,000 years now, rejected their Messiah And God is going to use the tribulation period to bring them to repentance. And Jesus said to them, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The tribulation period will bring them to that place to cry out for him. That's what's happening. The tribulation period, according to Jeremiah, is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time where the power of the holy people is shattered completely. They no longer trust themselves. They put their trust in the Messiah. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two of the tribulation period is to punish the world for its evil. Isaiah chapter 13 tells us. The Lord says, I will punish the world for its evil and man for his iniquity. I will make a mortal human being more rare than fine gold. So if you understand the purpose of the tribulation, You see, the church has no place there. We're not part of Israel, and we've not rejected the Messiah. We've not rejected Christ. We've received Christ as our Savior. And so the rapture is God's promise to deliver his people from that hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth. And so today, if you know Christ And as we think about these things, and as we talk about these things, and as we imagine these things, and as you might even occasionally have a nightmare about these things, it's worthy of nightmares, know this, you have nothing to fear. Because Christ is going to deliver his people before that. Now, now that doesn't mean that we might not go through our own season of persecution. It doesn't mean that at all. But the persecution that we will go through, like other Christians have gone through historically and like other Christians are going through today, um, the source of that will not be God. The source of that will be, as it's always been, Satan and evil people. Remember, the source of the tribulation is God. 
Jesus is opening these seals. This is the scroll that's in the right hand of God. This, the tribulation, is God's judgment upon the earth, and God's people will not experience God's judgment. And Abraham knew that. He said, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Far be from you to do that. And Abraham was absolutely right. And so the New Testament reminds us over and over again that we have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now, in closing, let me just say this. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, your only hope is to put your trust in him. And now is the time to do that. The Bible says, behold, uh, now is the time. Behold, uh, today is the day of salvation. You don't want to put this off any longer. You don't want to procrastinate any longer. No one knows the day or the hour. And whether the rapture is coming in two years or five years or 20 years, I, I don't know. Nobody knows. But you know, the moment you breathe your last breath, it's over for you anyway. And we never know when that's going to happen. And so salvation has been offered to us. We need to, to take it while it's available. Call upon the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. That's what the prophet said. And so as we close today, there's, there's two words. There, for those who know Christ and are his people, there's the, the, the comfort. There's the uh, assurance that we have no place in this tribulation period. Like I said, there's no guarantee we won't suffer persecution, but we won't go through the great tribulation. But the other message is to those of you who maybe you don't know Christ, or maybe you have had uh, an experience to some degree with the Lord, but you know you've never really made the commitment. You're not really walking with him. You come to church occasionally. Or maybe you come to church fairly frequently, but in your life away from church, you, you know the reality is you're, you're not in a real relationship with Christ. You're not walking with him and responding to him and, and obeying him. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. These things are coming we don't know when. It appears that they could come sooner than we think. But the final thing I want to say, you know, I don't like making an appeal to follow Christ based upon the idea of escaping the judgment. But you know, for some people, that's what it takes. If that's you today, And, and you need to be scared into the kingdom? <laughs> well, there's plenty to scare you right here. <laughs> but you know, there's so much more to come to Jesus for than for that reason. You want to come to Jesus not just so you don't experience the wrath of God, but you want to come because he loves you. And you want to come because he made you and he redeemed you and he's got a plan for your life and he wants to do good things 
with your life, and he wants you to be with him eternally. I mean, you can come motivated by fear, and some people do, but that gives way, ultimately, if you've really come, it gives way to, you know, wow, I'm here because Christ loves me. But either way, if you're not with the Lord today, make a commitment to him.